All right, let's turn to Philippians chapter 1. We're still there. We'll be there another couple of weeks. We're going to look particular at 8 through 11, but I'm going to start reading in uh, verse 3. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you, all making my joy in, with my... Bleh. Always in every prayer of mine for you, all, making my prayer with joy. Because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It is right for me to feel this way about you all, because I hold you in my heart. For you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness. How I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent. And so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Let's pray. Father, we uh, thank you for your word. We thank you that you've given it to us that we might have knowledge, knowledge of you, so that we would not perish, we would not be destroyed. And so we acknowledge our dependence upon you, uh, not only for the word, but also for your spirit uh, to help us understand your word. And so as we think, we ask that you would be granting us understanding in accordance with your grace and mercy upon us in Christ Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Uh, prayer is something that I imagine most of you struggle with. Prayer can be something that we have a hard time doing precisely because at times we're not really sure what to pray for. That's one of the hindrances of that I think often happens with prayer. There are other hindrances, but uh, this is one in particular. And we, what happens is that we tend to fall into patterns, repetitious patterns. And I see this with my children frequently. Um, they pray for the same things at night. You know, good dreams, good day. Sometimes they might throw in uh, something like uh, help us to love each other a little bit, uh, things like that. But there seems to be the usual pattern, even though I've taught them the Lord's Prayer, which is a pattern for prayer. And so uh, sometimes we quote it, and sometimes I wait in vain for them to somehow reflect it. <laughs> but don't worry, it's a process. Parenting is a process, folks. Um, but even as adults, we can struggle with prayer because we're not always sure what we should be praying. In this letter, Paul has earlier in verse 3 told the Philippians that he is praying for them, and now he tells them what he prays for them. I think the intention is twofold. One is to encourage them, 
but also to reveal a pattern for them to follow in their own prayers. To be thinking, oh, that's sort of what I can be praying about when I think about other people. And so I want us to look at this text from that perspective of how is it we can pray for other people. So our big idea this morning is pray for love and purity to the praise of God. I think this opens up for us the the idea of a gospel-centered type of prayer. Because it's one that is relying upon the gospel and seeking the fruit of the gospel and the lives of the people for whom we pray. So first off, let's start with this idea. Pray for Jesus to give overflowing love and wisdom. As I noted, Paul said that he he prayed for them, and now he begins to share what he's praying for them about. This, uh, I think, quick, brief mention of these things shows the shape that grace and peace were uh, to take within their lives, the way Paul wanted them to be formed in the Christian life. And so uh, this reveals something of his ambition for them, his desire for them, his great interest in them. This is, in many ways, what you could call a strategic prayer. This is a big-picture kind of prayer. We're going to see that it starts with the present and it moves to the future and then talks about the big goals that God, that Paul, reflecting God's goals, has for them. And so this is not about the details of life. This is more the big picture of the lives of the Philippians. Now, tactical prayer focuses more on the current problems. But these kinds of requests can also be made in the light of the present troubles that people may experience. And so, let's turn to Paul's prayer. He prays, first of all, that your love may abound more and more. He's already talked about how he has love for them because of the affections of Christ that fill his heart. And what he's saying is, I want that for you too. He wants their hearts to be filled with the affections of Christ for other people. That that this really is what the gospel is intended to produce in our lives. If we believe, as John did, and I believe therefore as Uh, Paul believed that God is love, then exactly what he wants to produce is people who love. And so Paul prays for this abounding kind of love to take place in their hearts. This is not the only place that Paul prays for this. The Thessalonians, for instance, in their first letter to the Thessalonians, in chapter 3, he says, And may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all, as we do for you, that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. Now, this doesn't say they have no love. We see already, uh, the context of this letter should indicate to us that the Philippians have some love. They are not a loveless people. 
But what Paul is saying is, I want you to have more love. I don't want you to have a little. I want you to have a lot. I want you to have so much that it's overflowing. One of the differences between a normal well or a basin is that there's just water in there. But a spring, a spring, the water keeps bubbling up. The water keeps bubbling over. And the container cannot contain the water that is there. And that's the idea that Paul has here of of fullness of love. Not the bare minimum of love, but a love that exceeds bounds in its excessiveness. That's what he wants for the Philippians. This is a a prayer for grace precisely because Jesus gives us what we lack through the gospel and for the purposes of the gospel. And so if we keep in mind the way this, this, this goes from places like 1 John, this is love, not that we loved God, but that He loved us and gave His Son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. And so it all starts with God who is love, whose heart is overflowing towards sinners, who then makes this atoning sacrifice of His Son to remove their guilt and shame and condemnation so that they can have fellowship with Him, so that they can experience His overflowing love, and that they then can, feeling and knowing that they are loved, begin to love other people. That's the process. That's a gospel-centered process. It flows out of God's incredible love for us and results in what should be our incredible love for one another as well as for the lost. This is not simply the love of affinity, people with whom you share common interests. Sometimes, you know, I'll be in a store and I'll see someone with a Red Sox hat. Affinity. Hey man, let's go. This is not that. This is the love that binds people who have no other affinity for one another. Their affinity is solely in Jesus Christ because they come from such different backgrounds. This is the kind of love that we see in Romans 5 where God's love is revealed and that Jesus died for helpless, ungodly sinners and enemies, people for whom there was no affinity. But rather, there was sacrifice that spilled over. Now, this overflowing love is not simply warm, fuzzy feelings. Uh, it, it does have this sacrificial element, but that's not all, because he says that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment. If you think of a stool, the least number of legs a stool can have and still be stable is three. And so there's something here about that. That for love to truly be stable or to be something you can rest upon, there needs to also be knowledge and discernment along with love. That these three together uh, create a stable environment for the gospel to spread within a community within a family, within a church. Love requires knowledge. 
We see that from the reading that we had from Hosea chapter 4. It was because of the lack of knowledge that God's people were destroyed. And so we don't want to have simply love. We also want to have a love that is has knowledge or is knowledgeable. And so we see from this that love is not opposed to truth. Love is not opposed to knowledge. But in fact, invites the knowledge of God and invites the knowledge of people. You would think I was a fool if you asked me if I loved my wife and I said yes. And then you asked me, well, what do you know about her? And I said, not much. (laughs) Wouldn't I be a fool? I know my wife better than I did when we got married. And I hope to know her better still five years from now. Love and knowledge hand in hand together. Discernment is that idea of being able to to divide or distinguish between truth and lies. It's a lot harder today with all the fake news that's going around today, (laughs) the proliferation of uh, crazy websites. But um, discernment often is, uh, I, I see online a lot, is often shrunk down to being able to spot a lie. That is a reductionistic understanding of discernment. Because discernment is also able, proper discernment, is also able to embrace that which is true. And so it, it, it's a, an aspect of wisdom with regard to knowledge is this is false knowledge or this is knowledge that will lead me into a bad direction and this is good knowledge, proper knowledge. That makes any sense. Affirming what is true and rejecting what is false. All the more important when we see the proliferation of religious knowledge, not just scientific knowledge. But we see discernment at work in many places in the Scriptures. For instance, Hebrews 5. Solid food is for the mature. How does he define the mature? For those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. So the mature person is someone who has learned how to distinguish good from evil, and the only way to learn this is through constant practice. We have playoffs going on right now, whether you're a hockey fan or a basketball fan. How do those men get to where they are? Constant practice. You don't get to play in the NBA because you occasionally have a pickup game at the Y. They're not going to suddenly go, oh, dude, we want to give you a big contract. We sometimes act as if the Christian life is one that is like a pickup game, the occasional pickup game at the Y. Every once in a while, we sort of discern, decide we have to, to practice discernment. Discernment is a constant thing. Something we're continually practicing. We're intended to be 
always making this determination of good and evil, not occasionally. Spurgeon noted that the sermon is not a matter simply of telling the difference between right and wrong. Rather, it is telling the difference between right and almost right. Because that is, the, that is the problem with a lot of the major heresies within the church. They have an element of truth. Satan always uses a little bit of truth to float his lies. And so there's an element that's there so that you will go, oh, that can't be all bad, and therefore you swallow something that really is quite bad because of a sliver of truth. If you want to think about it, uh, another way of looking at this in addition to the idea of a stool would be a trellis. Knowledge and discernment are like the trellis on which love can grow and thrive. A vine needs a trellis to grow and thrive. And so knowledge and discernment are like that trellis that help love to grow. But knowledge and discernment, I think particularly when we think about the Philippians and this idea of gospel partnership that we find in this letter, they're they're particularly needed in order to figure out who is a true gospel partner. You need to have knowledge of the truth. You need to be able to discern the truth so you can identify who is really your ally and who is a pretender. Very important for us to keep in mind. There were a lot of people, uh, evangelicals, who watched the royal wedding. Didn't watch it. I was asleep. Okay, Didn't DVR it. It didn't hit my radar as something that's important to me. You can pray for me later. It's all right. But a lot of Christians were enamored with the sermon. Because he talked a lot about love. But if you figure out who he is and what, and what therefore he means by love, which is really a, a love that tosses out discernment, that, that kind of trumps right and wrong, then you discover that really Curry is not an ally for the gospel, but rather he's someone who's undermining the gospel with a progressive sort of idea and notion of a, of a love that removes the reality of sin. And so it is important for us to have knowledge and discernment so we can know who's really on our team, who's with us, who's standing with us. Who are we to be supporting and encouraging with our money and with our prayers? It is important for that. But we must also know that there is a danger. For instance, in 1 Corinthians 6, knowledge puffs up. Love builds up. And so if we have knowledge but we have not love, we actually have nothing, as Paul would basically say later on in 1 Corinthians 13. And so knowledge and discernment that lack love actually destroy relationships and destroy evangelism. So there's some people who are really big on knowledge and discernment, but who lack love. And so they're really good at pointing out their enemies, 
but not really good at loving their allies or loving their enemies into allies. So pray. Pray that Jesus will graciously provide the love, the knowledge, and discernment that we lack but are yet so important. Secondly, pray for Jesus to purify them. Paul prays for this abounding love with knowledge and discernment for a reason. There's a purpose clause that's thrown in there. So that you may approve of what is excellent. This is almost verbatim to what he says in Romans 2. And know his will and approve what is excellent. How do you know what is excellent? Because you have been instructed by the law. You, you have knowledge from God. Right? And so Paul is expecting them to take this knowledge, to take this love, and to scrutinize, to examine, to put things to the test. Again, that idea of, of, of realizing what the counterfeit money is and the, therefore what the true, uh, genuine money is, the genuine article is. That's why our presbytery has an ordination team. We scrutinize men for ministry. We look to make sure that their theology is solid, but also that they have the gifts necessary to be a pastor, that they're not just intellectually ready, but they're spiritually ready to be pastors. Put to the test. So that you can approve what is excellent. Sorting out the best way to love particular people in particular contexts. That's the idea that Paul is getting at here. So that they can, they can take their knowledge of God, their knowledge of the law, see a person's context, and apply that in a helpful way. So that they're recognizing what's wrong in that person's life, and now they're bringing the, the proper aspects of the gospel to bear on those problems in a person's life. So, for instance, that is what the session often does. We've had some questions that have come up lately, and we're trying to answer some of those questions, and we're trying to apply our knowledge of God and be discerning and to love God's people as well as God as we answer these questions. It's not easy, and therefore we need grace. And so that's why Paul prays for this for the Philippians. Requires thinking. In my opening prayer, I referred to, may, may not have picked up on it, but 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 7, Think over what I say, for the Lord will give you understanding in everything. And so there we have that, that dependent discipline. Discipline in that they had to think. But it's dependent in that the Lord will give understanding. The Lord doesn't give understanding typically apart from your thinking. But we also recognize that our thinking is not enough. That we need His help in how we think because we have been affected by sin in our minds just as much as in our hearts so to speak.
So, we recognize our, our, the necessity of, being, of thinking and scrutinizing, but also our dependence upon God through this process, waiting for Him to give us understanding in these things. So Paul wants them to be equipped to embrace what is excellent or the best. Not simply to settle for what works. The goal? And so be pure and blameless. In other words, he wants them to approve what's excellent so that they can be pure and blameless. There's a goal here. Paul brings up this word about purity or sincerity. Okay? And it has the idea of this, uh, of garments being unfolded in the sunlight so that you can see if it has spots. A pure garment is one that does not have spots when examined in the light of the sun. Okay? Not in the basement of your house, <laughs> for instance, because, of course, light was better for them outside because they didn't have electrical lights like we do. They, they had candles. But, uh, you know, flickering candles and all the shadows they produce, not necessarily helpful for identifying the spots in clothing. So we need to look so that we can be spotless. But not just spotless, pure, speaking about the inner person, but we're also to be blameless. No cause for stumbling is the idea behind that idea, uh, between that word used, blameless. No cause for stumbling and kind of points to the the coherence between the inner purity and the outward behavior. Paul's not concerned about just one or the other. He's concerned about both in the life of the Christians uh, of these Philippians. And both are dependent upon that discernment that is scrutinizing things. We see both of these tied together, for instance... 1 John 3, And everyone who thus hopes in him, in him, Christ, purifies himself as he is pure. And so our, we seek purity, we desire purity, precisely because God is pure. And we are made to reflect him. But Psalm 119, for instance. Verse 1, Blessed are those whose way is blameless, who walk in the law of the Lord. These people are not not stumbling because they're walking in God's way, according to the law. Similarly, in verse 9, how can a young man keep his way pure, Okay, that inner aspect, by guarding it according to your word? And so both of these is, is pointing back to that knowledge that comes only from the Scriptures. Blameless. It's so important precisely because, as we see in James 3, we all stumble in many ways. And so this is a prayer for their progress in this. 
Stumbling is dangerous precisely because when we stumble, we can often cause others to stumble. If you're running the race together and you trip and fall, it's possible that you cause others to trip and fall. We've seen this in NASCAR. There's a big, I hear there's a big race this weekend. I'm not a big NASCAR guy, but I know that Indianapolis... One car crashes, what normally happens is multiple cars crash. Why? Because they're going so fast and they can't get out of the way of the one that's spinning. When you stumble in your life, what happens is that other people often trip and fall over you in a similar sort of fashion. Sin of Achan. He wasn't the only one who suffered for his sin. And it wasn't just his family. Remember, the whole nation lost at the Battle of Ai because of Achan's sin. People died because Achan was greedy. If you're not familiar with that, go back to the early chapters of the book of Joshua. Just hit Achan in your little computer and you'll see pretty soon what we're talking about here. Okay, We see a similar thing happening in the Southern Baptist Convention right now with uh, the, the now former president of Southwestern uh, seminary, erring, stumbling in his counsel to others and his speech to others. And, uh, and now we see this tumbling effect as disrepute has been brought upon that denomination because they've tolerated that man for decades. Our sin has consequences beyond us sometimes. And Paul is praying for them that there wouldn't be such a sin that trips up others, that causes them to stumble as well. What's the vantage point here? And I think that's an important thing for us to keep in mind. When he speaks about their purity and about their blamelessness, he speaks about for the day of Christ. This is about the future. This is about the completion of that good work that God has begun in them. It's not necessarily about the present. He's praying for their love in the present. He's praying for their knowledge and discernment in the present so that they will have these things, this, uh, this ability to, to discern so that when Christ returns, they will be pure and blameless. And so, as a result, I don't think he's talking about our positional righteousness, although we have positional righteousness and justification, but I believe he's speaking here about growth and personal righteousness, which is imparted by Christ himself, and we'll get to more of that in just a little bit. But as John Stott notes, Jesus is on his way, and we must be prepared for him. Again, he who has this promise purifies himself just as he is pure. Paul Miller talks about this in sort of a, a similar sort of way. And in, in, in the goal, at the center of self-will is me, carving a world in my image. At the center of prayer is God, carving me in His Son's image. And so, people who have their eye on the day of Christ are seeking to be remade in the image and likeness of Christ. And so that's what Paul is praying for. He's not saying that explicitly, but that's what he means. He's praying for people to be remade 
and the likeness, the image of Jesus Christ. And so a growth in love leads to a growth in discernment and decisions, which leads to a growth in godliness that is ready for the day of Jesus. So pray. While a recipient of grace, you and they are not all that you and they are supposed to be yet. Thirdly, we are to pray for Jesus to give God-glorifying fruit. See, the life Jesus is producing is not one simply of innocence. It's not simply the avoidance of sin. But but Paul speaks here of that they would be filled with the fruit of righteousness. You see, choosing well bears good fruit. And we'll return to that idea of husbandry. When a gardener chooses well, picks the right soil, picks the right food, picks the right times and the amount of water, that they get much fruit. When they choose poorly, they get little fruit or no fruit at all. And so Paul is saying that when we have been trained by constant practice to make, make discernments between right and wrong, we will bear much fruit of righteousness. So we see that love, if we start, remember this train starts with love. Love bears fruit in righteousness. Love is not opposed to righteousness. As some in our culture seem to want to think it is. Love is not opposed to obedience as some people try to pit them against one another. But rather, love is the proper motive for obedience to God. This fruit of righteousness, Paul says, that comes through Jesus Christ. Not produced by our efforts alone, but again is gracious fruit. Now, it's important. Because some of you perhaps have heard a lot of do, do, do in all of this. And I have not said that at all. Paul is praying for this to take place. Prayer is specifically about God doing, not you doing but God doing so that you can live in a way that's faithful to Him. So let's not lose sight of that. That this is a prayer for God to be at work in His people. And there will will be evidence of that in our lives, but this is not about you trying harder. This is not intended to be about, about you getting it all together on your own. This is about God putting you back together. Do you understand? You shouldn't hear this with guilt and condemnation. I hope you hear this with encouragement. Because this is part of how God who began a good work in you is bringing it to completion on that day in Christ Jesus. 
This prayer is one of the means that God uses to accomplish that good purpose that He has already ordained. And this is stressed again with the idea that this comes through Jesus Christ. This is gracious fruit. Not a fruit of your own doing. But it's one of His doing in you and through you. And so we have, on the one hand, Jesus' gift of righteousness to us. He gives us the robe of righteousness and what we call justification. Okay? He's removed our guilt and he, in, in our filthy robe and has given us a beautiful, clean robe, one of righteousness. But we also see that subsequent to that, following that, Jesus also gives us the gift of righteous fruit. And Calvin tried to reflect this in his notion of the double grace that comes from our union in Jesus Christ. Because Jesus gives us His righteousness and justification, but Jesus also, through our union with Him, sanctifies us or makes Him like Himself. And another way of of putting that would be, in justification, His righteousness is imputed or accounted to be ours, whereas in sanctification, His righteousness is imparted to us so that we become personally righteous, not simply positionally righteous. And we have both of those by virtue of our union with Jesus Christ. This is reflected in the idea that apart from me you can do nothing. We are completely dependent upon Jesus. But if we have no Jesus, we will have no fruit of righteousness precisely because apart from that abiding union with Christ, we can do nothing. So as we think about the people we pray for, what are we praying about? If we're looking at this, we're praying for love, but we're also praying for them to be in the Scriptures so that God can give them knowledge of Himself and God can give them knowledge for discernment so that they can be wise, so they can be holy, godly. That's a pretty tall thing that Paul was praying here. The ultimate goal is not simply that these people would be godly, but all of this is to the glory and praise of God. Not to the glory and praise of us, not for the glory and praise of Paul, not the glory and praise of the Philippians, but the glory and praise of God. Because God is the one who's who's hearing the prayer, God is the one who's answering the prayer and applying the salvation that Jesus earned for us through that prayer. And so it's glory and praise... For God. So gospel-centered prayer is focused on the glory of God, the God who gives us His grace as we need it, so that we can love, so that we can know, so that we can discern, so that we can bear fruit, being pure and blameless, 
all of these things. He receives glory because he is the one who gives it. Not we ourselves. So, Paul prayed for their immediate needs for love, for knowledge, for discernment, particularly in light of their longer-term need for purity and blamelessness because Jesus was coming. It wasn't as if they had no love, had no wisdom, and had no discernment, but in this fallen world and in our, because of our sin-affected minds, we need more. We need Jesus who brings such love, such knowledge, and such discernment with Him. We need Jesus who will fill us with the fruit of righteousness. We need Jesus who can make us pure and blameless. We need Jesus to the praise and glory of God. And so this is a prayer that recognizes our ongoing need for the gospel. That it doesn't end with conversion, but continues into the present and the future. But this is a prayer that also sees God's promise to bring that good work that he started to completion. So it's a prayer that's rooted in hope. So this is a God-honoring prayer. And I hope it's a prayer that shapes how you begin to think about prayer for other people as well as for yourself. So let's pray. Father, please increase our love for one another. Help us to love one another based on our knowledge of Christ and His Word. Grant us discernment to know how best to express Christ-centered love to one another, as well as how to express love to the world outside. Fill our hearts with the love of Christ. And may our love for Him who took a hold of us cause us to love others more sacrificially and genuinely. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.